You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 7th, Tuesday reading of the Denver Post. My name is Diane Adler. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Body cameras, police to use AI to review footage. Aurora's interim chief previously worked as advisor to firm that department is to hire by Elise Schmelzer. Arvada, Harris Visits Colorado by Nick Coltrane. Twitter, pro-Trump bots attack his rivals by David Klepper. Denver City Council, permanent homeless camps, zoning change would make safe outdoor spaces, tiny home villages, part of code by Joe Rubino and following up with miscellaneous articles. Body cameras, police to use AI to review footage. Aurora's interim chief previously worked as advisor to firm that department is to hire by Elise Schmelzer, the Denver Post. The technology is billed as a virtual sergeant, an omnipresent artificial intelligence capable of reviewing every minute of every police officer's body camera footage across an entire department, analyzing how each officer handled every call. The Aurora Police Department plans to implement just such AI tech in the near future, becoming the first law enforcement agency in Colorado to do so. The department is finalizing a contract with Trulio, a company that uses artificial intelligence software to analyze police officers' speech as recorded by their own body cameras. The software not only transcribes the audio and looks for key words, but interprets the meaning of what officers say and analyzes text in context. Trulio then looks for speech that either displays professionalism, like politeness, gratitude, or offering an explanation, or is evidence of negative behaviors, such as insults, profanity, and threats. It can flag potentially negative interactions to supervisors as well as measure an officer's professionalism. The Aurora Police Department, like many other law enforcement agencies, does not have the bandwidth to review the thousands of hours of body camera footage recorded every week. Interim Chief Art Acevedo said, Not only will the technology help the department identify questionable actions by officers, but it will also find examples of good work. This is a tool that will help us identify the good, the bad, and the ugly, he said. Several other police agencies across the country are using Trulio, although one major department paused its use of the technology due to pushback from civil rights advocates and its own officers. Civil rights leaders in Colorado said the public must be involved in decisions about when and how police can use artificial intelligence. The Aurora Police Department does not have an exact date for rolling out the technology as the contract has not yet been finalized, Acevedo said. The contract will be presented to the Aurora City Council and will cost approximately $200,000 a year, he said. That's a small fraction of the 928-person department's $150 million budget. If it were up to me, we'd have started yesterday, he said. One of the company's co-founders, Anthony Tassoni, called Trulio a virtual sergeant 
who is reviewing every officer's every action. We're a solution to a huge problem in policing in that they are spread thin and there is not a deep supervisory layer, he said. The technology can tell whether an officer uses force by looking for phrases like stop resisting and flag the footage, even if the officer doesn't report a use of force incident, Tassani said. The technology doesn't analyze tone, cadence, or volume, and instead only focuses on the word spoken, he said. Trulio also does not evaluate the video footage because accurate technology to do so does not yet exist, Tassoni said. Over time, the department can use the program's data to see which officers display the highest level of professionalism and which consistently act riskily, he said. Acevedo said the analysis will help with training and can be used by supervisors to help officers look for areas of improvement. He compared it to a sports team reviewing game film. Acevedo worked for Trulio as a strategic advisor from July to December. He de-invested from the company before taking the position as Aurora's interim chief, he said. A quote from him in support of Trulio remains on the home page of the company's website. The department's previous interim chief, Dan Oates, started the contracting process with Trulio before Acevedo's arrival, Acevedo said. The Seattle Police Department was one of the first major departments to try out the technology, but it has put its program on pause due to privacy concerns from civil liberty advocates and pushback from the police union. The general public needs to know when police are collecting data about them, like audio recordings of their voice, and should have a say in how police use artificial intelligence, said Anea Robinson, senior policy strategist at the ACLU of Colorado. Technology evolves much quicker than laws and regulation, he said. Data is also needed to prove that software like Trulio helps minimize officer misconduct, Robinson said. The reality is that a lot of people make the same argument about body cams, and when officers think they are being surveilled by their departments on a regular basis, that that would lower deaths and brutality, he said. But studies show that that's not true, that it's had a minimal effect. Departments in California, Pennsylvania, and Florida are also using Trulio, according to the company. Good police like what we're doing, Tassoni said. Other large law enforcement agencies on the front range use services that automatically transcribe body camera footage, and many are looking in the near future to use technology that flags key words. The Denver Police Department does not use body camera transcription for patrol stops and only uses it to transcribe internal affairs interviews. The Lakewood Police Department and the Douglas County Sheriff's Office use technology that automatically transcribes their officers' body camera footage, but they do not have the system set to automatically scan for keywords. Westminster Police tried out the transcription service and keyword flagging software offered by Axon, one of the country's largest body camera companies, but found it wasn't up to par and stopped using it. For example, the software could pick out an offensive word, but often couldn't tell whether the officer, subject, or someone in the background said it, Commander Tim Reed said. 
that ultimately creates more work for supervisors. Arvada, Vice President talks climate change, drought. Congresswoman Brittany Pedersen and world-class climber Sasha D. Julian discuss the issue in Arvada on Monday by Nick Coltrane, the Denver Post, Arvada. Vice President Kamala Harris highlighted the complexities and interconnected challenges posed by climate change during a visit to the Denver area Monday. Harris, a Democrat, spoke to an at-capacity 500-person auditorium and overflow rooms at the Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities. Dozens of state and local elected officials were in attendance. She was joined by newly elected Congresswoman Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood and world-class rock climber Sasha D. Julian of Boulder. The three Westerners, Harris is from California, noted the extreme threat climate change and the drought it drives posed to the region. Harris, who landed at Denver International Airport from Los Angeles, recalled the much-needed snow covering the California mountains as she left, but also the danger the snowpack posed if it melted into a flood. She called it a weather whiplash. We're looking at everything from drought to extreme rain and snow, Harris said. Here in Colorado, I don't need to tell you what that has meant. She did not tout any specific new proposals from the federal government, but highlighted new technologies and ways of thinking about the challenges. Building off the flood example, Harris noted efforts to pivot from treating floods as pure disasters in need of mitigation, as also opportunities to capture water before it rushes into the ocean. She also noted new satellite technology that helps track water sources from space and how it can help steer policy. While acknowledging that water issues are interconnected and highlighting the Colorado River as a specific example of that, she did not wade into the controversy and brewing fights over the rights to the West's aquatic artery. Pedersen, who has a young son, noted how much climate change has already changed daily life in the state. She recalled playing outdoors regularly as she grew up in Jefferson County. Now, air quality days cancel sporting events and lead to warnings to keep kids indoors, she said. We have to stop just talking about our obligation for the next generation. And believe me, that motivates me more than anything now, having a young son. But we need to talk about what is happening right now, Pedersen said. Two of the introductory speakers, Sherry Walker-Ravenel of the Black Parents United Foundation and Olga Gonzalez of Cultivando, each talked about how climate change and pollution disproportionately affect communities of color and poorer communities. Gonzalez specifically cited pollution from the Suncor oil refinery. We ask you to join us in pushing for regulations that actually protect human health so that our children do not continue to be sacrificed for the sake of cheaper gasoline, Gonzalez said. The speakers nonetheless shared a sense of optimism as they celebrated the federal spending and programs stemming from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and Democrat-passed Inflation Reduction Act, which many tout as the largest climate change package passed by Congress. On Monday, Governor Jared Polis's office announced that Amprius Technologies will open a 775,000-square-foot factory in Brighton to help manufacture lithium-ion batteries.
The company was one of the first to receive funding from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act to expand domestic manufacturing of batteries for electric vehicles and the electric grid. Its investment in Colorado includes a $50 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. Twitter, pro-Trump bots attack his rivals by David Klepper, the Associated Press, Washington. Over the past 11 months, someone created thousands of fake automated Twitter accounts, perhaps hundreds of thousands of them, to offer a stream of praise for Donald Trump. Besides posting adoring words about the former president, the fake accounts ridiculed Trump's critics from both parties and attacked Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador who is challenging her one-time boss for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. When it came to Ron DeSantis, the bots aggressively suggested that the Florida governor couldn't beat Trump, but would be a great running mate. As Republican voters size up their candidates for 2024, whoever created the bot network is seeking to put a thumb on the scale using online manipulation techniques pioneered by the Kremlin to sway the digital platform conversation about candidates while exploiting Twitter's algorithms to maximize their reach. The sprawling bot network was uncovered by researchers at Syabra an Israeli tech firm that shared its findings with the Associated Press. While the identity of those behind the network of fake accounts is unknown, Syabra's analysts determined that it was likely created within the U.S. To identify a bot, researchers will look for patterns in an account's profile, its follower list, and the content it posts. Human users typically post about a variety of subjects with a mix of original and reposted material. But bots often post repetitive content about the same topics. That was true of many of the bots identified by Syabra. One account will say, Biden is trying to take our guns. Trump was the best. And another will say, January 6th was a lie and Trump was innocent, said Jules Gross, a Syabra engineer who first discovered the network. Those voices are not people. For the sake of democracy, I want people to know this is happening. Bots, as they are commonly called, are fake, automated accounts that became notoriously well-known after Russia employed them in an effort to meddle in the 2016 election. While big tech companies have improved their detection of fake accounts, the network identified by Syabra shows they remain a potent force in shaping online political discussion. The new pro-Trump network is actually three different networks of Twitter accounts, all created in huge batches in April, October, and November 2022. In all, researchers believe hundreds of thousands of accounts could be involved. The accounts all feature personal photos of the alleged account holder, as well as a name. Some of the accounts posted their own content, often in reply to real users, while others reposted content from real users, helping to amplify it further. McConnell, traitor, wrote one of the accounts. In response to an article in a conservative publication about GOP Senate leader Mitch McConnell, one of several Republican critics of Trump targeted by the network. One way of gauging the impact of bots is to measure the percentage of posts about any given topic generated by accounts that appear to be fake. 
the percentage for typical online debates is often in the low single digits. Twitter itself has said that less than 5% of its active daily users are fake or spam accounts. When Syabra researchers examined negative posts about specific Trump critics, however, they found far higher levels of inauthenticity. Nearly three-fourths of the negative posts about Haley, for example, were traced back to fake accounts. The network also helped popularize a call for DeSantis to join Trump as his vice presidential running mate, an outcome that would serve Trump well and allow him to avoid a potentially bitter matchup if DeSantis enters the race. The same network of accounts shared overwhelmingly positive content about Trump and contributed to an overall false picture of his support online, researchers found. Our understanding of what is mainstream Republican sentiment for 2024 is being manipulated by the prevalence of bots online, the Syabra researchers concluded. The triple network was discovered after Gross analyzed tweets about different national political figures and noticed that many of the accounts posting the content were created on the same day. Most of the accounts remain active, though they have relatively modest numbers of followers. A message left with a spokesman for Trump's campaign was not immediately returned. Most bots aren't designed to persuade people, but to amplify certain content so more people see it. According to Samuel Woolley, a professor and misinformation researcher at the University of Texas, whose most recent book focuses on automated propaganda. When a human user sees a hashtag or piece of content from a bot and reposts it, they're doing the network's job for it and also sending a signal to Twitter's algorithms to boost the spread of the content further. Bots can also succeed in convincing people that a candidate or idea is more or less popular than the reality, he said. More pro-Trump bots can lead to people overstating his popularity overall, for example. Bots absolutely do impact the flow of information, Woolley said. They're built to manufacture the illusion of popularity. Repetition is the core weapon of propaganda, and bots are really good at repetition. They're really good at getting information in front of people's eyeballs. Until recently, most bots were easily identified thanks to their clumsy writing or account names that included nonsensical words or long strings of random numbers. As social media platforms got better at detecting these accounts, the bots became more sophisticated. Denver City Council, permanent homeless camps, zoning change would make safe outdoor spaces, tiny home villages, part of code by Joe Rubino, the Denver Post. Denver officials are working to make the temporary managed campsites that popped up around the city during the pandemic a permanent tool for addressing the homelessness crisis. The mechanism, a proposed amendment to the city's zoning code that would bring the campsites, sanctioned overnight parking areas, and tiny home villages under the umbrella of a new land use designation known as temporary managed communities. Safe outdoor spaces, as the clusters of tents that have occupied fenced-in parking lots in neighborhoods from Park Hill to Baker are known, have been part of Denver's homelessness response since 2020. 
They were launched as part of the city's effort to mitigate the pandemic. They allowed officials to reduce crowding in traditional congregate shelters, limit the spread of COVID-19, and prevent more people from setting up their own tents on city streets, said Councilwoman Robin Knish. Knish, an at-large member of the council, is working with District 10 Councilman Chris Hines to co-sponsor the amendment. The sites are now viewed as a critical piece of the city's effort to limit illegal camping while working to scale up long-term housing solutions for unhoused Denverites. Our homelessness and housing crises continue, and we need to sustain these spaces to fill the gap between housing and shelter going forward, Knish said. Since the first safe outdoor space opened in late 2020, the camps and their sister concept, safe parking sites for people living out of vehicles, have provided temporary shelter for more than 515 people. Of those, more than 180 moved into a more stable, long-term housing situation, according to the city. A draft of the new code language was posted to the city's website Monday. Residents are invited to offer feedback via email ahead of a public hearing before the city's planning board on April 5th. Knish expects the city council to vote on and likely adopt the code change in June. If the zoning code is not updated, the temporary zoning rules that have allowed the sites to operate since 2020 will expire at the end of this year. That could impact plans being promoted by mayoral candidates who are proposing more sanctioned campsites around town if they are elected. We have to keep doing rapid rehousing, supportive housing, and other permanent housing solutions, but we are unable to do them to the scale that is needed. So this is about filling the gap, Knish said. We know what happens. If we don't have this strategy, we have unsheltered homelessness. The sites can accommodate couples and people with pets who might avoid standard shelters where they can't stay together or with their animals. They also provide more privacy for people, including members of the LGBTQ community that sometimes don't feel comfortable in a congregate shelter separated by gender. The City Council on Monday extended the city's contract for Colorado Village Collaborative, the nonprofit organization that manages the safe outdoor spaces and tiny home villages around town. With $7.5 million in new funding, including $7.3 million in federal COVID relief, the collaborative is now set up to keep operating sites with room for up to 410 households through the end of 2024, according to a city news release. The contract passed as part of the council's consent agenda, signaling a lack of controversy and broad support. Some Denverites have worried the sites might drive crime in their neighborhoods and even taken legal action to try to block them. But Knish said they are no longer the controversial concept they were when they were first introduced. This contract extension will help us to continue to serve more individuals in a dignified manner and connect them to additional services, said Shayla Romney, the Colorado Village Collaborative's interim CEO. Romney is excited that the text amendment proposes allowing the sites to stay at one location for up to four years, a much longer period than the leases the organization is signing now. At first, Mayor Michael Hancock was skeptical of even the tiny home village concept, 
in which unhoused people are given their own modular housing unit, complete with a locking door. After visiting the tiny homes and listening to residents' stories, he said he now believes in their potential to get people into more stable housing. He supports the text amendment. I'm glad and pleased that is advancing, and hopefully they will make it happen, he said. Legislature. GOP digs in against gun bills. Democrats' four major proposals will face hours of testimony this week. By Seth Klamen, the Denver Post. A Republican lawmaker apologized to his colleagues Monday morning for a tweet that threatened civil war over gun reform efforts. But in a nod to the looming legislative fights over firearms set to begin this week, he emphasized how important the issue was to him and his constituents. I do want you to understand that firearms are something that are near and dear to folks on the Western Slope and throughout rural Colorado. Delta Republican Representative Matt Soper told his House colleagues Monday morning. Two days before, he tweeted an image of himself firing a rifle and warning that anyone who attempted to disarm gun owners should be prepared for civil war. But I do want to say to this chamber, I should have chosen a couple of different words that were included there, and my apologies. Soper's apology comes as Colorado lawmakers brace for protracted debate and public testimony about a package of gun violence prevention bills set to begin their journey through the Capitol this week. Republicans have promised to do whatever they can to fight the proposals, which include a ban on the sale of assault weapons, age limits, and an expansion of the state's red flag law, and cast them as ineffective solutions to complex problems. The first of those bills, to institute a minimum three-day waiting period between a would-be gun buyer initiating a background check and taking ownership of the weapon, came before the House's State, Civic, Military, and Veterans Affairs Committee Monday. Three other gun reform measures will be in committee Wednesday. All are expected to pass committees controlled by Democrats, but they're also certain to attract hours of testimony from opponents and supporters alike. Fighting that and other bills, Republican Minority Leader Representative Mike Lynch said, is a top priority for his caucus. At least two of his colleagues, Republican Representatives Ryan Amagos and Ty Winter, both wore assault weapon pins on their lapels Monday morning. Winter said the gun bills constituted the state falling asleep at the wheel and said the Second Amendment was a way for people to have a check on their government. There's not a lot of wiggle room when it comes to gun rights, he said. Lynch said the party is likely to launch hours of filibuster delays, akin to the 24-hour filibuster they undertook last year to fight a marquee abortion bill to stall the gun legislation. It's a bright, shiny thing that's easier to approach than attacking the harder issues, Lynch said of the gun reform bills. We're not talking about mental health because we're going to waste the next three weeks dealing with guns. I'm not sure it's an effort in the right direction. Given Democrats' sizable majorities in both chambers, delays are likely all that Republicans can hope to achieve. Lynch joked that he hasn't figured out a new way for the minority party to kill a bill. Taylor Rhodes, the executive director of Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, promised Monday to file lawsuits over the Democrats' gun bills, an implicit acknowledgement that the party has the ability to pass a legislation it wants to. 
The most controversial of the gun bills may be the one that Republicans have the best hope of defeating. On Friday, the much-debated bill to ban the sale of assault weapons in Colorado was finally introduced in the House, prompting Soper's tweet. The bill's introduction, which came after a high-profile rollout for other gun bills, had been a sore spot for its primary sponsor, Denver Democrat Representative Elizabeth Epps, who told the Post that she felt it was being sidelined. The measure's other primary sponsor, Representative Andy Bosenecker, took his name off of the bill before it was introduced. Lawmakers have said it may have a difficult time passing the Senate, given that Democrats in the chamber feel it will be less effective and require more attention and oxygen than the rest of the package. The most diverse Democrat caucus that we've seen in Colorado's history is probably going to come around and not be 100% behind some of these measures, Lynch said, referring to the assault weapon bill. Will it be enough to turn the tide? I don't know. He reportedly said that lawmakers should focus on mental health rather than gun reform. It was a familiar attack line for Republicans and their allies. Representative Richard Holtorf, an Akron Republican, said the Democrats' bills wouldn't do anything to address gun violence in the state, which he said is caused by societal degradation and the prevalence of drugs like fentanyl. He accused social justice warriors of not being willing to engage on those issues. In testimony to lawmakers Monday, Rhodes also brought up the need to focus on mental health solutions. That prompted Bosenecker to ask Rhodes what mental health legislation his group had supported in years past. Rhodes replied that his organization is focused on gun rights, not mental health issues. Asked what behavioral health solutions he would propose in lieu of gun reform, Lynch said he was in the minority in the House and he couldn't keep ahead of the many mental health proposals being contemplated in the legislature. A spokesman pointed to a bipartisan bill signed into law last week that will allow psychologists to prescribe medications, and Lynch reiterated that he thought part of the issue was a degradation of dads showing sons how to properly use firearms. What is the proper mental health solution, he said. I don't know. In brief, Colorado man pleads guilty to two charges of assault. A Colorado man pleaded guilty Monday to using a baseball bat and pepper spray on four U.S. Capitol Police officers during the January 6, 2021 riot that interrupted the certification of the 2020 election. Robert Geiswein pleaded guilty to two federal charges of assaulting or interfering with a federal officer. Each count carries a maximum sentence of up to eight years in prison and a $250,000 fine. In exchange for the guilty pleas, federal prosecutors agreed to dismiss nine other counts they filed against Geiswein. Geiswein, then 24, traveled to the Capitol from Woodland Park and carried a bat and dressed himself in pseudo-military garb during the riot, according to the criminal complaint filed against him. He also wore a patch for an alleged paramilitary training program he ran in Colorado. The patch helped federal law enforcement identify him, according to the complaint. Videos of Geiswein at the Capitol show him spraying a police officer with an unknown substance while the officer was trying to keep the crowd from pushing down barricades, according to the affidavit. He encouraged others in the mob to break a window and then climb through the window into the Capitol, the affidavit states. 
Geiswein appeared to be affiliated with at least one anti-government militia movement, the Three Percenters, according to the arrest warrant. He also claimed to run a local private paramilitary training group called the Woodland Wild Dogs. Geiswein is scheduled to be sentenced on June 9th. This brief was by Elise Schmelzer, the Denver Post. Man found guilty in 2018 death of three-year-old boy. More than four years after a three-year-old boy was found dead in a Denver apartment, the boyfriend of the child's mother has been found guilty of first-degree murder, child abuse, and reckless endangerment. John Aforted, 37, was convicted Friday by a Denver jury for the September 25, 2018 incident, according to a press release Monday from the Denver District Attorney's Office. Prosecutors said Aforted killed his girlfriend's son, Jeremiah Garuli, in an apartment the couple shared in the 900 block of South Dahlia Street. The Denver Office of the Medical Examiner determined the boy died as a result of blunt force trauma. Aforte was arrested the day after medical personnel responded to his apartment. He was charged with murder a couple of weeks later. Aforte will be sentenced on April 6th. This brief was from John Aguilar, the Denver Post. Brighton, location of largest battery factory in state, officially set. Officials announced letter of intent to build 775,000 square foot plant by John Aguilar and Judith Kohler, the Denver Post. It's official. What will soon be Colorado's largest battery manufacturing plant is coming to Brighton. Governor Jared Polis and the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade announced Monday that Amprius Technologies Incorporated has signed a letter of intent for a 775,000 square foot facility on East Bromley Lane for the manufacture of lithium ion batteries. The Denver Post reported last week that the city of Brighton approved a package of economic incentives to encourage the Fremont, California company to open up shop in Colorado. The Colorado Economic Development Commission in February approved $5.49 million in state job growth incentive tax credits for the project, then referred to as Project Maverick. Amprius Technologies has developed its lithium-ion battery technology for more than a decade, and the large facility in Brighton the company will move into will allow it to scale up manufacturing of its breakthrough product, said CEO Kang Sun. Sun told The Post on Friday that Amprius was in the final stages of leasing a 1.3 million square foot industrial facility in Brighton and near Interstate 76. He said the company has a team on the ground in Colorado. The first phase of operations, which will cover about 775,000 square feet of the site, is expected to start by 2025. Construction retrofitting what was a distribution facility for Sears and Kmart will take about 18 months. The plant will employ about 330 people in its first phases, Sun said. The operation might eventually expand to the entire facility. We are looking forward to putting our first large-scale manufacturing plant in Colorado, Sun said. This is a major milestone for this company, not only for this company, but for the lithium-ion battery industry. Amprius, founded in 2008, is one of the first companies to receive grants from the Department of Energy as part of the federal infrastructure law 
intended to expand domestic manufacturing of batteries for electric vehicles and other uses. The $50 million grant will be part of the $190 million investment in the plant. The DOE said the grant is for the first-of-its-kind large-scale production lines for the company's high-energy battery technology. The company has run a small production plant in California since 2018. The company is forming two business units. Amprius Fab, to be located in Brighton, will focus on large-scale manufacturing of silicon anode batteries. Amprius Lab in Fremont will focus on advanced battery technology, product, and manufacturing process development. The plant is expected initially to produce up to 5 gigawatt hours, which would be the potential energy generated by all the cells manufactured. For context, 1 gigawatt could power 3.125 million photovoltaic panels, or 9,090 Nissan Leafs, according to the DOE. Amprius produces a silicon anode platform to use in battery cells. Silicon can store up to 10 times more lithium than graphite, which has been traditionally used. As a result, the batteries deliver up to 100% higher energy density than standard lithium-ion batteries, according to the company. Amprius uses silicon nanowires to address the potential problem of the silicon swelling and cracking when charged with lithium. The battery cells are lighter, smaller in volume, and can generate a lot of power for the takeoff and landing of electric planes, Sun said. We can charge our battery from 0 to 80% in less than 6 minutes. The company's technology has been used in military drones and high-altitude pseudo-satellites, uncrewed air vehicles. Last year, Amprius announced a three-year cooperation agreement with BAE Systems, an international defense and aerospace company. We need more batteries to power the future, and now we will be manufacturing more of them right here in Colorado, Pola said in a statement. Colorado's clean tech industry contributed $4.6 billion to the economy annually and employs more than 62,000 people, said Eve Lieberman, executive director of the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade. The plant will be more than 10 times the size of Colorado's next biggest battery plant in the state, Louisville-based Solid Power's 75,000-square-foot facility in Thornton. The average annual wage of the jobs will be $68,516, which is 104% of the average annual wage in Adams County. These will include management, engineering, business support personnel, technicians, operators, and maintenance positions. Texas and Georgia were the other contenders for the battery plant. One of the reasons Amprius selected Colorado was because of the availability of silane gas in the area. Sun said Montana is the largest producer of the gas used to produce silicon components. The large industrial site in Brighton and the city's location near Denver International Airport and the city of Denver were also attractive to Amprius. We also believe Colorado has a very good education system, Sun said. The University of Colorado, the Colorado School of Mines, and other area schools will be good resources for the company's engineering team, he said. Sun, who previously led ventures in solar energy, has worked with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden in the past. In the future, I assume our executives and lead engineers would like to locate in the Denver area.
courts, disbarred Denver attorney Bakar skips sentencing for felony theft. Free on bond, Bakar was due to be sentenced for defrauding an investor in his business of $125,000. By Shelley Bradbury, The Denver Post. Disbarred Denver attorney Steve Bakar skipped his sentencing hearing in his felony theft case Friday and is now wanted on a warrant, court records show. Bakar, 57, was due to be sentenced for defrauding an investor in his business of $125,000. It was not clear Monday why Bakar, who is out on a $25,000 bond, did not show up to be sentenced in Denver District Court. A call to his cell phone went straight to voicemail Monday, and he did not return a message left seeking comment. Bakar pleaded guilty in November to one count of felony theft and a second count of misdemeanor theft as part of a plea agreement in which he received a deferred judgment on the felony charge. That is, the felony will be wiped from his record if he meets court-set conditions for the next two years. Bakar would have received probation on the misdemeanor count as part of the plea deal, but any violation of the terms of the deferred judgment triggers harsher penalties, and if such a violation is found, Bakar faces between 2 and 12 years in prison. Bakar's failure to appear Friday should not affect the terms of his deferred judgment because it hasn't yet been finalized, said Carolyn Tyler, a spokeswoman for the Denver District Attorney's Office. Prosecutors expect Bakar to appear in court Friday to address his warrant, then proceed to sentencing on Friday as well. Bakar, who served in the White House under President Bill Clinton and in the Treasury Department before he moved to Denver, was criminally charged a year after he was sued in two separate lawsuits and accused of mishandling nearly $2 million in funds intended for personal protective equipment during the pandemic. He was ordered to pay $4.5 million in those civil cases, which are not connected to the criminal case against him. He was disbarred in June, at which time authorities noted he had not paid any of the civil damages. Boston to Denver. No one hurt when two United flights touch at airport. By Mark Pratt, the Associated Press. Two flights scheduled to depart from Boston Logan International Airport on Monday morning made contact with each other near the gate area, Federal Aviation and Airport officials said. United Airlines Flight 515 was being pushed back from the gate by a tow tug when its right wing struck the tail of United Airlines Flight 267, parked at a neighboring gate around 8.30 a.m., according to preliminary information released by the Federal Aviation Administration. Both jets were Boeing 737s. No injuries were reported. Flight 515 was heading to Newark, and Flight 267 was scheduled to fly to Denver, airport officials said. Both jets were taken out of service, United said in an emailed statement. Customers on both aircraft deplaned normally, and we've made arrangements to get them to their destinations on different aircraft, United said. Both flights were rescheduled for later in the day. The investigation is ongoing. The incident came one week after a JetBlue flight from Nashville, Tennessee, landing at Logan, had to take evasive action when a Learjet charter jet crossed an intersecting runway. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating. There have been several other safety incidents involving commercial aircraft in the past few months. 
There was one at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York in January, another in Austin, Texas in February, and one off the coast of Hawaii in December. I don't know that I can say that it's a trend, but these are disturbing because it just takes one, NTSB Chair Jennifer Homanday said last week. That is why we investigate incidents so that we can identify problems, especially when we see trends, and address them before they become a full-blown accident. FAA Administrator Billy Nolan said last month that he was putting together a team of experts to review airline safety. Kidnapped by armed men, four Americans taken in Mexico by Alfredo Peña, the Associated Press, Ciudad Victoria, Mexico. Four Americans who traveled to Mexico last week seeking health care got caught in a deadly drug-related shootout and kidnapped by heavily armed men who threw them in the back of a pickup truck, officials from both countries said Monday. The four were in a white minivan with North Carolina license plates. They came under fire on Friday, shortly after entering the city of Matamoros from Brownsville, the southernmost tip of Texas near the Gulf Coast, the FBI San Antonio Division Office said in a statement Sunday. All four Americans were placed in a vehicle and taken from the scene by armed men, the office said. The FBI is offering a $50,000 reward for the victim's return and the arrest of the kidnappers. A video posted to social media Friday shows men with assault rifles and tanned body armor loading the four people into the bed of a white pickup truck in broad daylight. One is alive and sitting up, but the others seemed either dead or wounded. At least one person appeared to lift his head from the pavement before being dragged to the truck. The scene illustrates the terror that has prevailed for years in Matamoros, a city dominated by factions of the powerful Gulf drug cartel who often fight among themselves. Amid the violence, thousands of Mexicans have disappeared in Tamaulipas state alone. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said Monday the four were traveling to buy medication. There was a confrontation between groups and they were detained without offering details. Tamaulipas Chief Prosecutor Irving Barrios told reporters that a Mexican woman died in Friday's shootings. He did not specify whether she was killed in the same gunfight where the kidnapping took place. A woman driving in Matamoros witnessed what appeared to be the shooting and abduction. She asked not to be identified for fear of reprisal. The white minivan was hit by another vehicle near the intersection. Then gunfire rang out, the woman said. Another SUV rolled up and several armed men hopped out. All of a sudden, they, the gunmen, were in front of us, she said. I entered a state of shock. Nobody honked their horn. Nobody moved. Everybody must have been thinking the same thing. If we move, they will see us or they might shoot us. She said the gunman forced a woman who was able to walk into the back of a pickup truck. Another person was carried to the truck, but could still move his head. The other two they dragged across the pavement. We don't know if they were alive or dead, she said. Mexican authorities arrived minutes later. Photographs from the scene show a white minivan with a bullet hole in the driver's side window. Shootouts in Matamoros were so bad Friday that the U.S. consulate issued an alert about the danger. Local authorities warned people to shelter in place. 
It was not immediately clear how the abductions may have been connected to that violence. In brief, two dead in stampede at Glorilla concert. The death toll rose to two on Monday following a stampede at a rap concert in Rochester, New York, that authorities say may have been triggered by unfounded fears of gunfire. Rap stars Glorilla and Finesse Two Times had finished performing Sunday night at Rochester's Main Street Armory when people exiting just after 11 p.m. began to surge dangerously. Police Chief David M. Smith said at a news briefing Monday, We do not have any evidence of gunshots being fired or of anyone being shot or stabbed at the scene, Smith said. Concert goer Ikea Hayes returned to the venue Monday to retrieve belongings she left behind. I was watching my life flash before my eyes, and I still didn't even know what was going on, she told Rochester TV station WHEC. She described being on the ground, just scared, praying like, you got to get up, you got to move. Police found three badly injured women in the auditorium. One, identified as Rondizia Belton, 33, of Buffalo, died at a hospital. Police announced the death of a 35-year-old woman late Monday. Her name was not released. Another woman remained in critical condition, police said. Seven additional people were treated at area hospitals for injuries that were not life-threatening. What began last night as a night of live music and fun for the performer Glorilla ended in tragedy, with one person dead and two more fighting for their lives, the chief said. While there is no evidence of gunfire, Smith said, police are investigating several possible causes of the fatal surge, including possibly crowd size, shots fired, pepper spray, and other contributing factors. Mayor Malik Evans called the fatal stampede totally unacceptable and promised a thorough investigation into whether venue operators had the necessary safety measures in place. There was no immediate response to emails requesting comment sent Monday to the Main Street Armory. Glorilla, whose 2022 song FNF Let's Go with Hit Kid was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rap Performance, tweeted that she was praying everybody is okay. Fatal crowd surges have been a recurring disaster at concerts and other large events in the U.S. and around the world, including one at a 2021 concert by rapper Travis Scott in which 10 people died. The Armory hosted sporting events throughout the 20th century before being shut down starting in the late 1990s, partly because it lacked a fire suppression system at the time. It reopened after extensive renovations and began hosting concerts and other events in 2005. This brief was from the Associated Press. Avian Influenza U.S. considers vaccinating chickens as bird flu kills millions of them by Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Emily Anthus, The New York Times, Washington. The Biden administration, keeping a watchful eye on the outbreak of avian influenza that has led to the deaths of tens of millions of chickens and is driving up the cost of eggs, not to mention raising the frightening specter of a human pandemic, is contemplating a mass vaccination campaign for poultry, according to White House officials. The bird flu outbreak, which began early last year, is the biggest in the nation's history, affecting more than 58 million farm birds in 47 states, as well as birds in the wild.
It has already spilled over into mammals such as mink, foxes, raccoons, and bears, raising fears that the virus that causes it, known as H5N1, could mutate and start spreading more easily among people. Experts at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, whose focus is human health, say the risk of a pandemic is low. As a precaution, the agency has sent drug manufacturers flu virus samples that could form the basis of vaccines for people. The CDC is also exploring whether commercial test manufacturers would be willing to develop tests for H5N1 similar to those used for the coronavirus. Bird flu infections in humans are rare, and transmission of bird flu between humans is extremely rare. Worldwide, there have been nine H5N1 cases reported in people since the beginning of last year, according to the World Health Organization. In Cambodia, an 11-year-old girl recently died from H5N1, and her father was also infected with it. Those scientists have not found evidence of human-to-human spread in those cases, and the virus was a different version than the one circulating in birds in the United States. Cases typically involve people exposed to poultry. In the United States, the CDC, in partnership with state and local public health departments, is monitoring people who are exposed to H5N1. As of last week, 6,315 people had been monitored, 163 reported symptoms, and one tested positive, according to Dr. Tim Uyeki, the chief medical officer of the CDC's influenza division. At the same time, officials at the Federal Agriculture Department, which is responsible for the health of farm animals, say they have begun testing potential poultry vaccines and initiated discussions with industry leaders about a large-scale bird flu vaccination program for poultry, which would be a first for the United States. Farm birds are already vaccinated against infectious poultry diseases, such as fowlpox, but an avian influenza vaccination program would be a complex undertaking, and poultry trade associations are divided over the idea, in part because it might spawn trade restrictions that could destroy the $6 billion poultry export industry. Dr. Carol Cardona, an expert on avian health at the University of Minnesota, said that the fear of trade bans was a huge barrier to the mass vaccination of poultry. In brief, from the Denver Post Wire Services, U.S. said to consider reinstating detention of migrant families. The Biden administration is considering reviving the practice of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally, the same policy the president shut down over the past two years because he wanted a more humane immigration system. Officials familiar with the discussion said Monday, Although no final decision has been made, the move would be a stark reversal for President Joe Biden, who came into office promising to adopt a more compassionate approach to the border after his predecessor, former President Donald Trump, introduced a series of harsh immigration policies. The Biden administration has largely ended the practice of family detention, instead releasing families into the United States temporarily and using ankle bracelets, traceable cell phones, and other methods to keep track of them. Thank you for joining us for the Denver Post. My name is Diane Adler. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.